Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 4, Apalache. I'm Brandon Seal. On June 25th, 1528, 300 men under the command of a one-eyed conquistador named Panfilo de Narvaez appeared on the outskirts of a Native American village near modern-day Tallahassee, Florida. Narvaez and his men had been guided to this spot by a charismatic native lord named Dulcancheyin, who had convinced Narvaez that this village, Apalache, was the wealthiest in the region. But now, Dulcancheyin was gone. It seems that he had been more interested in steering the Narvaez expeditionaries away from his own village than in becoming their allies in a war against Apalache. And even the one-eyed Narvaez could tell that Apalache was no Tenochtitlan. Despite being the largest community they had yet encountered, it consisted of a mere 40 small straw houses scattered amidst the checkerboard of family cornfields. And yet Narvaez had been told repeatedly by natives that he had captured and perhaps tortured that Apalache was full of gold and corn and, quote, a great quantity of everything which we esteemed in everything, end quote. And so he remained committed to conquering this poor village, motivated by the slim hope that it might hold some great hidden treasure, but also by the fact that it apparently did have some corn to offer his hungry men and beasts. To lead the assault on Apalache, he selected the expedition's royal treasurer, our very own Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. And so Cabeza de Vaca, with a force of 50 foot soldiers and nine horsemen, rushed into the village unopposed, to the surprise of the native women and children in the village chief that they found there. The other men in the village were out hunting or something, but they too soon got word of what was happening back at home, and Narvaez, with the rest of his force, managed to enter Apalache just as the native men folk returned to discover that their town and their families had fallen captive to alien invaders. Understandably, this made them quite angry, and so from a distance they began to shout and gesticulate violently at the conquistadors. Narvaez still had no translator for the region, but he had no trouble understanding what these natives were saying. They wanted their families back. Narvaez was happy to oblige them in this instance. It meant fewer mouths to feed in the village. But he held back the village chief as a hostage, which was also something right out of Cortez's playbook from the conquest of Mexico, though done again without Cortez's finesse. Predictably, all of this provoked a response from the natives, who didn't just want their families back, they wanted their whole village back. And so the next day, the Apalachians attacked the expeditionaries, setting fire to their own lodges which were now occupied by Narvaez and his men. Castilian arquebuses and crossbows took a toll, however, and drove back the native assault. Unfazed, the natives returned again the next day and attacked from the other direction, though with the same result. A few buildings burned, a few native casualties, and a hasty retreat. During the second assault, however, the Narvaez expeditionaries managed to capture a few of the natives, and they started to interrogate them. Where is the real Apalache, they wanted to know. The Apalache they imagined was a gold-working, corn-raising civilization, maybe not the size of a full-on Tenochtitlan, but still a civilization worth placing themselves on top of as tribute-extracting overlords. And this little collection of straw huts in front of them was not that. Interestingly, not far north of the village that the Narvaez expeditionaries now occupied were quite a few much larger villages, representing the southeastern edges of the Native American Mississippian culture. Though provincial by comparison to the great cities of Mesoamerica, 
these Mississippian communities were not insignificant. Hernando de Soto's expedition, just a decade later, would record a rather sizable settlement of 200 to 250 houses, just a few miles north of where Narvaez and his men were now holed up, something that the archaeological record would confirm too. Some accounts suggest that this native community, which would thereafter be known to Europeans as Apalache, may have even had some sort of emperor, ruling over a loose confederation or at least a trade network of smaller, outlying communities. So while the real Apalache might not have lived up to the grandeur of Tenochtitlan, the village that Narvaez and his men now occupied was perhaps a suburb of it. Which is to say, they actually were on the right trail. Which seems to be why his native captives lied to him and told him that he wasn't. It apparently wasn't difficult for them to tell that Narvaez meant trouble. And so they did what every other native group in Florida would do. They tried to send the Castilian expedition away from their friends and towards their enemies. Further north are only small, poor villages, they lied. You're looking at the largest and wealthiest of our communities. But, they continued, if you go southwest instead of north, there is a village you should check out. It's called Aute, and it has lots of corn, beans, and squash, and seafood too, because it's close to the ocean. Narvaez and his men didn't know what to think. After two months now of marching through Florida, they were exhausted. And though the village they were in had some corn, deerskins, and even a few woven textiles, it clearly couldn't support them for long. Over the next few days, Narvaez sent out several scouting parties to reconnoiter the area, which he still thought was the coast of northeastern Mexico. Yet those scouting parties each returned without any particularly encouraging leads. Mostly, they found only increasingly bold natives, who had quickly learned the advantages of stealth and surprise against the slow, armored Castilians. Now, whenever expeditionaries went for water, they were shot at. Scouting parties were followed, and foraging parties were ambushed. Soon, supplies began to run out, or perhaps to just disappear. And by this point, Narvaez had to have been getting nervous about how long it had been since he'd had contact with his ships. So taken together, the idea of retiring to the coast by way of this mysterious new destination, Aute, suddenly didn't seem like such a bad idea. So after 25 days in Apalache, sometime in August of 1528, Narvaez and his men packed up their things and left the village that they thought they'd been looking for for the last three months. And yet they left it almost as hungry and poorly provisioned as they had entered it. And now they were being pursued closely by Native Americans who sensed their weakness. Native sharpshooters sniped at the expeditionaries from behind trees and across impassable marshes. Every day of their retreat to Aute, a few expeditionaries fell. Everywhere they went, it seemed, the natives were now waiting for them, which was especially terrifying to the expeditionaries because they had seen how effective the natives were at long ranges with their longbows, whose arrows they could fire clear through oak trees, quote, as thick as a man's calf, end quote. The expeditionaries' growing fear had the effect of making the natives into terrifying giants, quote, marvelously well-built, very slim, and with great strength and agility, end quote. Almost everyone in the entire expedition, including Cabeza de Vaca, was wounded at some point on the march back to the coast. But finally, after nine days, they arrived at Aute. But the town had been evacuated and burned to the ground before they got there, though plenty of ripe corn, squash, and beans had been left in the field, which temporarily restored the expeditionary spirits. 
For two whole days, they did nothing but recuperate. They ate, they tended to their wounds, and they tried to decide what to do next. Their situation was dire, and they knew it. As fearsome as these so-called conquistadors imagined themselves to be, their effectiveness relied on a very complicated supply chain. In the moment that Panfilo de Narvaez cut himself off from his ships, he cut himself off from his supply chain as well. These expeditionaries weren't really equipped to live off the land, particularly in a foreign and, quote, strange land, end quote. Narvaez knew that he needed to find the coast, that he needed to reestablish contact with his ships, and the man that he picked to do it was the man who had most vocally advocated for it initially, Alvaro Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. Narvaez tasked Cabeza de Vaca with leading a force of 50 foot soldiers and seven horsemen to the coast. To his command, he attached two younger captains, whose names you should take note of here. One, Alonso Castillo, was the son of a doctor from Salamanca, whom Cabeza de Vaca had already commanded a scouting party with, successfully, I might add, in the previous episode. And the second, Andres Dorantes, was a slightly older, battle-hardened veteran of the King's Wars in Castile. Maybe there was some kind of affinity amongst the three men that even Narvaez could see. It was, as we mentioned, the second time that he had paired Cabeza de Vaca with Castillo in command of a mission, and Castillo and Dorantes would later be given another command together as well. Fortunately, as advertised, Altea wasn't that far from the Gulf. After just one day of marching, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and the rest of the scouting party struck saltwater. They feasted that night on oysters and, quote, gave many thanks to God for having brought us here, end quote. But the bay that they had found was still quite far removed from the open ocean. As far as they could see, in fact, was only more marshlands and shallow bays, the kind that their deep-drafted transatlantic ships could never enter. And those conditions also made marching along the coastline extremely difficult, if not impossible. With this mixed news, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and their party returned a few days later to the rest of the Narvaez expedition camped out in Aute, only to be met there by truly terrifying news. A sickness had begun to sweep through the camp, dysentery perhaps, killing several dozen men over the course of just a few days. Even Narvaez had been laid low, and his prospects seemed questionable at that point. And so, even though Cabeza de Vaca's scouting report had given the expeditionaries no reason to expect they would find anything good once they made it to the coast, it was clear that staying put where they were would do them no good either. And so, the expedition resolved to march on to the coast, which Cabeza de Vaca tells us about in pretty dramatic terms in his narrative, paraphrased slightly here. Quote, The march was difficult in the extreme, because we didn't have enough horses to carry the sick, and because we didn't know what to do to treat them. Each day they suffered more, and it was a sad and painful thing to see the necessity and hardship that we were in. And once we made it to the coast, it became clear what little prospect there was of continuing forward there, because there was nowhere else to go. And even if there had been, the men could go no further because most of them were sick, and the rest were too few. I'll leave off here from telling any more, as each may imagine for himself all the things that could happen in a land so strange and so bad and so lacking in anything which we might have been able to use to extract ourselves from it. Yet in that moment, something else happened, which made everything worse. A large number of the horsemen began to conspire amongst themselves to leave behind the governor and the sick men, who were at that point without strength or power. 
end quote. This was an altogether new threat. Despite all the hardship, the shortages and disease that these men had endured together, up until now, the Narvaez expedition had at least retained its sense of unity. Even Narvaez and Cabeza de Vaca's squabbles had done nothing to damage the overall unit cohesion. Their disagreements always remained within the bounds of fair argument. But something changed now. As the expedition slogged through the Florida marshes, still menaced on all sides by natives and the natural world around them, the mounted men, principally the, quote, Hidalgos and men of good breeding, end quote, began to plot to leave the others behind. Cabeza de Vaca wasn't among these men, perhaps because their plan was as foolish as it was desperate. Their perceived advantage of being mounted was offset by the fact that they had nothing to feed their mounts with and that they were more than a thousand miles away from anything worth riding to. Narvaez soon found out about their plot, but he couldn't punish them to the extent he might have liked because he needed their manpower and he needed their horses. All he could do was call a council of officers to review the desperateness of their situation together, which he did on or around August 4th, 1528. By this point, fully one-third of the expedition was too sick to keep on marching, including Narvaez himself. The caballeros attempted mutiny, voted poorly for the officers' ability to keep holding things together for much longer. Their ships were still nowhere to be found, and since they had marched inland back on May 1st, three months ago, they had covered almost a thousand miles, which is either an exaggeration resulting from their confusion or an indication of how extremely circuitous their wanderings had been. All of which is to say, the Narvaez expedition still had no idea where they were. So given all this, what in the world should they do? We all love stories about scrappy, misfit military units that come together in the face of impossible odds and overcome. Think Saving Private Ryan, The Great Escape, Band of Brothers, etc., etc. Well, this is one of those moments, too. There on the Florida coast, this misfit band of Castilians, Portuguese, Greeks, Native Americans from Mexico, enslaved Moors from Africa, and countless other places decided to take control of their destiny. These men were products of the most advanced civilization in the world, after all. Their fathers had completed the 800-year reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Their brothers had just conquered an empire in Mexico larger than the Iberian Peninsula. These were the go-ahead men of their age, to misuse a 19th century term. Si se puede men, to misuse a 20th century one. And in this case, the answer to what the expedition should do didn't come out of the officer's council. It came from one of the men. Quote, The next day, God willed that one of our company came to us and said that he would make some wooden pipes and deerskin bellows, end quote. Then, another man with experience as a carpenter came forward. And from there, God's plan for them unfolded. Instead of just sitting and waiting for their ships, they would build their own watercraft and brave the waters of the Gulf of Mexico on their own. The expeditionaries got to work. They scraped together all the iron they could find. Armor, stirrups, spurs, crossbows, slave chains, whatever. This, of course, reduced them to a more vulnerable state, more or less on par with the natives who were still picking them off whenever they could. But the expeditionaries still gave as well as they took, raiding nearby villages to stock up for their upcoming raft voyage. From their scrapped iron, they were able to forge saws, axes, and other tools, as well as nails, chains, and binders. 
They felled the many different species of trees surrounding them, ripped them into more usable lumber, and experimented with the relative benefits of different wood for different parts of their craft. From the fibers of palm trees, they made ropes and oakum. Pine tar served them as caulk. Stones, they decided, could work as anchors or ballast, and their shirts and pants they sewed together into sails. The moment called for sacrifice as well. The expeditionaries slaughtered a horse every third day and used it to feed the men doing the actual work. This was quite an incentive for the hungry men, one necessitated, perhaps, by the class-conscious Castilian nobleman's reluctance to perform manual labor. Additionally, slaughtering the horses served to dismount the mutinous noblemen, reducing them to the same level as everyone else as well. And of course, the resourceful expeditionaries made good use of every part of their horses. Their tails and manes they wove into ropes, their meat they dried and jerked, and their hides they scraped and tanned to use as canteens for carrying fresh water on the rafts that were taking shape right before their very eyes. The rafts measured all of about 30 feet long, with their width presumably some fraction of that. This meant that the surviving 242 men would each have about as much space as a yoga mat on which to face the Gulf of Mexico. And though the logs making up the rafts were lashed together as tightly as the men could manage with their horsehair ropes, they were anything but watertight. They were kept afloat by the buoyancy of the logs, and only barely. Once the rafts were loaded down with men and provisions, they floated all of about six inches above the waterline. Now this actually made the rafts fairly resistant to storms and swells because the waves could just wash over and through them. And so all things considered, these would prove to be pretty hardy little crafts. By around September 22nd, 1528, a month and a half after the expeditionaries had started working on them, the five rafts were as complete as they were ever going to be. And none too soon either. Forty men had died in the preceding weeks from the mysterious illness ravaging their ranks. Ten more had been killed within sight of camp by natives. And by September 22nd, they were down to their last horse. And so, it was on that day that 242 shirtless expeditionaries slaughtered their last horse and boarded their rafts. Narvaez and a suspiciously non-random selection of the 49 healthiest, strongest expeditionaries made up one crew. Another raft, captained jointly by Alonso Castillo and Andres Dorantes, carried 48 men. Two other rafts had 49 and 47, respectively. And the last, led by Álvaro Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, carried the remaining 49. As the Florida shore receded from view, the Narváez expeditionaries could still see the horse skulls that they'd left behind on the beach. The Narváez expeditionaries called it the Bay of Horses, a memorable description, to be sure, if not a bit sardonic. It's doubtful that anyone was laughing, however, because as they floated into the surf, a new challenge awaited them. None of the men on board the rafts knew the first thing about maritime navigation. All the actual sailors and pilots, recall, had stayed aboard the ships, which had continued in vain searching for the expeditionaries down near Tampa Bay, where they had dropped them off. But Narváez, Cabeza de Vaca, and the rest of the expedition were well beyond where anyone thought they could be, and only heading further away, drifting west now along the uncharted northern rim of the Gulf of Mexico. 
Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode at rivardreport.com, home for nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Also, please go like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We're telling old stories in new ways here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collection at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout this season. And for more information about the sources we've used in this series, as well as about us generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.